This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, writer Sarah Menavis speaks to Canadian pop-punk star Avril Lavigne about the impact of her album Let Go on its 20th anniversary. Journalist and filmmaker Michael Segalov reviews Netflix's new LGBTQ plus coming-of-age rom-com series, Heartstopper. Writer Yasmina Floyer explores why, like herself, so many women are ditching underwired bras. And finally, writer Amina Sala gives us tips on how to sleep better in warmer temperatures. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language, reference of suicide, and use of homophobic terms in this episode. Now, it's been 20 years since the release of pop-punk princess Avril Lavigne's debut album, Let Go. In the early 2000s, Lavigne stood out amongst the likes of more bubbly pop stars Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera and set new trends for young millennials with her skater-influenced style and punk rock sound. Now as Y2K pop culture enjoys a TikTok revival, Levine speaks to writer Sarah Menavis about the influence she's had on her own generation and the next. Read by Kike Bremer. For a generation of girls who spent years exclusively wearing butterfly clips, bright blue eyeshadow and pale pink everything, the release of the pop-punk princess Avril Lavigne's debut album, Let Go, on the 4th of June 2002, was not merely a new sound, it was enlightenment. In an era where bubblegum pop and sexy baby personas reigned, the 17-year-old Lavigne emerged as its antithesis, rarely seen without a baggy pair of jeans, heavy coal eyeliner and a loose tie around her neck. She co-wrote her own songs with lyrics about skateboarding and getting fired from a chicken shop. Her first two singles, Complicated and Skater Boy, both spent half of the year on the Billboard Hot 100 and Let Go remains one of the 20 best-selling albums of the 21st century. Levine's snarky attitude, grungy look and alternative-inspired sound 
was a potent combination that elevated Let Go above the rest of the pop pack. Almost overnight, girls all over the world began to swap choker necklaces for men's neckwear, body glitter for leather bracelets, and denim for cargo pants. Her videos featuring Levine trashing malls and skating with groups of boys were watched obsessively. Let Go unleashed an army of 7 to 15-year-olds brimming with ennui, desperate to remake themselves in Levine's image. I was getting out of high school and I just wanted to rock out, says Levine today, speaking from her home in Malibu ahead of the album's 20th anniversary. I want loud guitars. I want live drums. I want to write about the crazy stuff, the insane emotions, the good and the bad. All of this, Levine says, was a genuine reflection of her teenage experience. Born in Ontario, Canada in 1984, she spent most of her childhood in Napanee, a small town with a population of roughly 5,000, where she wrote poems, learned to play guitar and hung around with the grungy kids. She initially made a name in the country music world, an influence that can be heard in some of the twangy cadences and narrative storytelling on Let Go. She even performed on stage with Shania Twain after winning a radio contest in her early teens, before signing to Arista Records and moving to California at 16. Even at the time, Levine felt acutely aware of her innocence within the music industry. I didn't even know what Hollywood was or what record deals were, she says. The process of finding co-writers and producers who matched her artistic style involved an endless string of uncomfortable meetings in corporate boardrooms. Her age, coupled with her lack of understanding of the mechanics of production, led to a struggle to get her sound across. They didn't care what I had to say. They had their own style and didn't bother to look at me and try to let me lead, she says. However, Levine's instincts were strong. I was very clear on what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. I wanted to be angsty, and to sound more like a band. I didn't want to be all bubblegum pop. I wanted to turn my emotions into lyrics. I was honestly just very, very pure. She eventually settled on a music writing and production trio known as The Matrix, consisting of Lauren Christie, Graham Edwards and Scott Spock. The moment things began to click for the group was when they wrote their first track together, the song that became Levine's breakout hit, Complicated. I didn't know what hits were, but my body and my intuition knew that this was a hit song, she says. I was like, this is fucking cool. This sounds cool to me. Over the next year, Levine and The Matrix would meet in studios and hotel rooms across Southern California to build the 13-track album. The themes were heavily influenced by Levine's life, which at the time, she says, mostly involved wearing fat skate shoes and finding skateboarders hot. But while many of her songs were fun and frivolous, such as Skater Boy, or light and melodic, like Mobile and Anything But Ordinary, darker emotions cut through elsewhere on Losing Grip and the album's only ballad, I'm With You, which Levine says is still a highlight of her live performances. The combination of these different themes and attitudes made for an album that could be played repeatedly without becoming repetitive. I wrote this album right when I got out of high school and now I get to hear these lyrics of me talking about my small town and my obsession with skater boys, she says. Even things like in my world, I literally talk about the fact that I got fired by a fried chicken ass I worked for at a fried chicken chain. 
it's hilarious. I look back at those lyrics and I'm like, I can't believe I said that in a song. The naivety and simplicity of her lyrics turned out to be a key to her success. Targeting a young audience, Let Go propelled Levine beyond two-hit wonder status. But even with the success of the album, she couldn't quite grasp quite how big it had become. I remember my manager being like, do you realise you're number one? And still number one this week, and number one this week, and then this week. Levine's self-assurance obscured just how young she was when she rose to fame, and that she did so during a time when young celebrities were facing extreme sexualization and horrifying invasions of privacy. However, Levine stood apart from other female pop stars at the time through her tomboy look and active criticism of her contemporaries. In one interview, she mocked Britney Spears for dressing like a showgirl. Looking back at her treatment in the early noughties, does she wish it had been different? Unusually, Levine feels gratitude for being a teenager when Let Go debuted. I remember being at home and being 14 and thinking like, I need to hurry up and get this music thing going, she says. I was like, I want to be doing this while I'm young. I moved out of my parents' house and directly into a tour bus, not having any rules, she adds. I was like, I can drink beer now and eat pizza every day. And I just got to hang out with my band and travel the world. It was crazy, but it was pretty special. Let Go's 20th anniversary comes alongside a reprisal of Y2K culture by a generation too young to remember it. Several of its tracks have gone viral on TikTok, and Levine has been cited as an influence by Gen Z artists such as Billie Eilish and Olivia Rodrigo, who brought Levine on stage at a recent gig for a duet of Complicated. Concurrently, there's also been a rise in emo nostalgia among older music fans. Levine is playing a festival in the autumn, Las Vegas's When We Were Young, that went viral earlier this year for featuring so many popular emo and pop-punk artists of the noughties, including My Chemical Romance, Jimmy Eat World and Paramore. Levine finds the whole experience surreal. That younger generations are discovering my stuff and that Billy, Olivia and Willow Smith go out into the world and continue to shatter the mould like I did 20 years ago is super inspiring. She says even the musicians she's friends with and collaborates with are longtime fans. All these people around me are like, oh my God, I'm a huge fan. I listened to you growing up. You inspired me. (laughs) It's really trippy. Her future plans include working with two other superstars, Blink-182's Travis Barker, whose label, DTA Records, put out Levine's recent album, Love Sucks, and Machine Gun Kelly, who features on the album and with whom Levine will be going on tour. Major items on her bucket list include a Christmas album, a makeup line, and a cookbook. My food is like gourmet, she says. I can do everything. Pasta, sauce, vegan, salads and soups. I can do every kind of soup. She has also recently found a director to lead a film adaption of Skater Boy. I can't wait to learn this process of making a movie, she says. I think I want to make more. 20 years on, Levine believes the appeal of Let Go has endured because once people connect to her music, they stay connected. 
I've always had this thing where I'm like, just be as sincere as possible, she says. The songs are real and they're emotional. That works for me. That was Avril Lavigne. I moved out of my parents' house and straight into a tour bus with no rules by Sarah Manavis. Read by Kike Brima. Next, It's a Sin, Sex Education, Everybody's Talking About Jamie. These recent productions covering stories of LGBTQ plus youth have been huge hits. They've addressed the highs and mostly the very lows, such as homophobia, the impact of HIV and AIDS, and the desertion of friends and a family that can come with revealing your sexuality. But the new coming-of-age Netflix series Heartstopper goes against all conventions. It is first a romantic story for the lead character, a young, openly gay student falling in love with the most popular athlete at school. Writer Michael Segalov is not convinced this is the most accurate story to tell. But is this new generation doing things differently? This article contains homophobic terms and reference to suicide. Read by our lead actor. Barely three minutes into the first episode of Heartstopper, Netflix's new LGBTQ plus coming-of-age rom-com series, which has been a knockout success with critics and viewers, I turned to my boyfriend, curled up next to me on the sofa. Aimed primarily at a young audience, the show is about an openly gay male sixth former at an English comprehensive, played by 18-year-old Joe Locke, who falls in love with the school's most popular rugby player in the year above. There's no way, I declared to my partner with confidence, that this is going to end well. His love would go unrequited. We'd seen it all so many times before. The idea that the show might end as it did, with a tear-jerkingly joyful celebration of young queer love in full bloom, depicted gorgeously, seemed impossible. My own similar experiences at school, I believed, had taught me far better. The notion that television executives would commission or that British audiences would welcome a mainstream queer and adolescent happily ever after was firmly beyond the realms of possibility in my jaded millennial mind. As the Heartstopper plot unfolded, however, so too did a real-life event. By the time in episode 8 the two main characters had truly fallen for each other, teenage Blackpool FC footballer Jake Daniels had come out. He was the first gay male professional footballer to do so since Justin Fashnu, in 1990. A week after Fashnu came out, more than three decades ago, his own brother, fellow footballer John, all but disowned him. John Fashnu, my gay brother is an outcast, read a headline in The Voice. Brian Clough, Justin's manager at Nottingham Forest, meanwhile, described his star player as a bloody puff. Fashnu tragically killed himself. Years later, John spoke about his regret over how he treated his older brother. In 2019, he and his daughter launched the Justin Fashnu Foundation to eliminate prejudice in football. Thankfully, the response to Daniels sharing his sexuality has been the total opposite. The FA labelled him an inspiration, while England striker Harry Kane tweeted, Massive credit to you, and the way your friends, family, club and captain have supported you. In the same week came the announcement that 18-year-old transgender woman Yasmin Finney, another Heartstopper cast member, had been cast as Rose in the up-and-coming Doctor Who series. 
These were by no means the first and only examples of recent milestones in LGBTQ plus visibility and representation. There's the triumph of musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie, first on the West End stage, and now a feature film produced by Amazon. The runaway success of Netflix's Sex Education, which is impressively LGBTQ plus inclusive, and Russell T Davies' drama It's a Sin, about the AIDS crisis too. And yet, something about Heartstopper, Doctor Who and this news from the world of football sat a little differently. These weren't stories that centred on overcoming prejudice like countless others. Each of these three was a positive presentation of a new generation's queer experience, the angst and trauma that we've become so accustomed to witnessing taking a back seat. In Heartstopper, bigotry and prejudice are far from the primary focus, and the show has proved to be so wildly popular that it has already been commissioned for series two and three. For Joe Locke, Heartstopper's breakout star, this is precisely what he saw in the script from the outset. It felt like an optimistic retelling of real life, he tells me over the phone, squeezing in a few minutes to speak midway through his A-level exams. Stories like this one will and do occur in schools today, he believes, even if some of the challenges are more easily overcome in the show than in real life. But I don't think that's a bad thing, he adds. If anything, it's wonderful. Because for so long, queer people have had to read and listen to stories of which the only thing that happens is hardship. And it's important we change that narrative. We need queer stories with happiness at the forefront too. It's a way to change realities in the real world. With recent polling showing that only 54% of Generation Z are attracted exclusively to the opposite gender, compared with 81% of boomers, Plenty of signs suggest this next generation of young LGBTQ plus people have never had it better. With these highly visible examples of queer teenagers thriving and demographic shifts showing greater ease with sexuality and gender, could it be the battle for true equality has passed a crucial turning point? Heartstopper's Truham Grammar School for Boys might well be fictional, but many schools across the country have been through radical changes recently. When I left school just over a decade ago, LGBTQ plus societies were incredibly uncommon. My secondary education began only a year after Section 28 was repealed. Legislation which banned local authorities and schools from promoting homosexuality in any form. Today, from Wolverhampton to North Wales, Brighton to Bristol, there are plenty of examples of educational institutions boasting a pride group. And at Impington Village College, a state secondary school with 1,300 students on the outskirts of Cambridge, spaces like this have proved invaluable for LGBTQ plus youth. When I meet a group of Impington pupils, it's immediately obvious just how far better informed and equipped they are compared to so many queer kids who came before them. During introductions, it's the students who instigate the sharing of preferred pronouns, Within minutes, one sixth former, Ada, is telling me how in heteronormative society, spaces run by and for queer people, such as their school's active gay-straight alliance, are important places for self-expression and personal growth. Each student shares reflections on their own experiences. 18-year-old Greg recounts his discomfort in his previous education setting, a faith school, while holding hands with his now boyfriend, Milo, a non-binary sixth former, was readily accepted by most corners of the school community with little second thought. 
I had a really positive experience of being queer when I was younger, says Amy, a final year pupil. But I never felt I had anyone to look up to outside of school. I'd avoid romance on TV or in books because there was no story I could connect with. Even though in this environment I'd been accepted, I just assumed I'd be straight when I grew older because there was no reference points. The night Heartstopper came out, Amy watched it all in one sitting. I cried so much, she says. Young, British gay people being out and happy. I hadn't seen it. It took me a long time to feel comfortable using the word lesbian to describe myself. I'd never heard it. But in the show, there were these two girls happily calling themselves lesbians and in love. It's revolutionary for younger people like me. Of course, each student still had their own barriers to acceptance. But these teenagers, having the language to describe them and a space to discuss them, is no doubt testament to a changing world. This, however, doesn't come without its own set of challenges. The safety these teens experience in the classroom, most say, feels at odds with what they think might await them in the outside world. Many millennials didn't come out at school. The prospect of doing so felt far too dangerous. Surviving the secrecy was made bearable by clinging to the idea that things could get better in later life. For these young people, at least, there is a real fear that the opposite might be true. It's not always comfortable to be so informed. Digital natives, they have not been shielded from the struggles facing LGBTQ plus people in Britain. The backdrop of increasing LGBTQ plus hate crimes, a crisis in mental health of trans people and the government's continued refusal to ban traumatising conversion therapy. Talk of higher levels of LGBTQ plus homelessness came up repeatedly, as did the knowledge that their school experience wasn't necessarily the norm. A report by Just Like Us, a British LGBTQ plus youth charity, last year found 42% of LGBTQ plus school pupils have been bullied in the past year, double the number of their non-LGBTQ plus peers. Sue Sanders, Emeritus Professor at the Harvey Milk Institute, co-chair of the charity schools Out UK and LGBTQ plus History Month co-founder, believes there are real risks in being seduced by the idea that the outlook is singularly rosy for young people. She says LGBTQ plus children's experiences at school are a postcode lottery. What we see are some schools doing the work brilliantly, but plenty of others refuse. Too often, she says, support for LGBTQ plus pupils relies on the efforts of a single teacher, later collapsing without them. Others do nothing or continue to illegally tell their LGBT teachers not to come out. To this day, only around half of Britons are supportive of LGBTQ inclusive sex education in schools. Katie Slee, head of academy at Leeds United FC, sees the same contrast in the world of football. Having spent 14 years working at the club in various capacities, she has seen huge shifts in the way inclusivity at the club is implemented. At every level, players and staff have attended football versus homophobia sessions and training. And in 2018, Leeds United was the primary sponsor for the city's pride events. One of the biggest shifts has been in language, she says. I'm not having to challenge young players as much as before. Staff never use homophobic language, when at one stage they might well have done, without thinking about it. She adds, that's not consistent across every club. I know for a fact it's not. 
On multiple occasions, young Leeds players have reported homophobic language from opponents on the pitch to referees, who haven't always taken any action. It's a phenomenal shift, Slee says, but it's not enough. I've not known a single player at any level who has come out while playing for the club, from the juniors right up to the first team. That simply doesn't add up. Even cultural advances, Russell T Davies argues, need to be considered in their context. There's no denying much has changed since Queer as Folk, the series he wrote about three young gay men living in Manchester, was first released in 1999. When I think about writing Nathan, a teenage schoolboy coming out of the closet, it was like a lightning bolt, a meteor. It was an impossible thing to imagine on screen, he says. But I wrote it because I'd started to see it in the clubs in Manchester. That certainly feels much more normal now. In the same way, shows like Heartstopper take the dialogue further. The mentorship depicted between an out gay teacher and a gay pupil feels firmly new territory. As in sex education, young gay male characters are finally shown to foster close friendships with their heterosexual male peers. Society is also splintering, Davies says. There are examples of a marvellous gender-fluid youth, but that's certainly not universal. And in some ways, things are worse than before. Consider, for instance, the treatment of trans people. Back in 2004, Nadia Almada, a trans woman, won Big Brother with a whopping 74% of the popular vote. If a trans person won a reality show now, there'd be delight, but also backlash and uproar. These moments need to keep on happening. We need to keep knocking down those walls over and over again. The truth is, there's no singular stream of linear progress. Matt Cook is a professor of modern history at Birkbeck University with a focus on queer histories. He can track similar contradictions throughout the past 30 years and beyond. If we look to the 1980s and early 90s, Cook explains, there was a clear effort by gay and lesbian people to make themselves heard and visible. In the context of that upsurge of homophobia, Section 28 and the AIDS crisis, there was a fight against silence as so many were dying or having their voices sidelined. What emerged was alternative theatre, queer cinema and more queer community spaces, all created by and for queer people. These provided a lifeline and anchor for people like me coming of age, Cook says. What followed, according to Cook, was a shift in mainstream culture. Under Tony Blair's Labour government, Section 28 was scrapped, the Equalities Act introduced, the age of consent was equalised and out gay men and lesbians could for the first time serve in the armed forces. Along came Queer as Folk, LGBT History Month, Gay Best Friends in Sex and the City and openly queer contestants on major shows such as Big Brother. Suddenly, Cook says, there was LGBTQ plus representation everywhere. That was tremendous for people coming out, but there's a parallel loss. Gay bars closed, communities disaggregated. In some ways, isolation felt more acute because there was a presumption that everything was fine. A decade earlier, argues Cook, it was easier for LGBTQ plus youth to articulate their struggle in the late 80s to say, I feel shit because there are endless tabloid headlines saying my life is worthless. Difficult experiences became harder to define in this later period. Lisa Power is a co-founder of Stonewall and an activist since the 1970s. She says, I'm encouraged that we've started to learn from our history. It's probably the first time we've had enough history to learn from, 
and that ensures we remain vigilant at times like this. There are some people who love queer people, reckons power, others who are hate-filled. The vast majority is somewhere in the middle and quite easily swayed. Some people are shocked, she suggests, that the natural progress they presumed would come towards the sunlit uplands for queer acceptance hasn't materialised. Power knows representation matters. The fact Heartstopper can depict a blossoming young queer love story, a single male footballer feels able to share his sexuality, or a school adequately supports LGBTQ plus youth, are, of course, all worthy of celebration. They offer glimpses of a better future. And yet somehow, she believes, they also expose just how far we still have left to go. There is a struggle ahead, Power says, and it will not be easy. But there are literally more of us, and with more tools, than there have ever been before. That was Young Gay People Being Out and Happy, It's Revolutionary, Meet the Heartstopper Generation, by Michael Segalov, read by Walid Akhtar. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, the pandemic saw us all trying new things, whether it was learning how to bake banana bread, adopting lockdown puppies, or ditching our jeans for leggings. Some women have even ditched the bra, or at least the underwire. It's nothing new that underwired bras in particular cause discomfort and are often the first thing to come off when one arrives home. But with so many of us staying home, has the market changed? Writer Yasmina Floyer asks, is there a post-pandemic future for bras? Read by Kike Bremer. It's spring 2022. Running late for the school pickup is stressful at the best of times, let alone when you're not wearing a bra. I knew I could make it if I ran, but while I'm petite, I wear a D-cup. So jogging along a main road mid-afternoon involved pinning my forearms to my chest like a T-Rex, as if this was somehow less ridiculous than clutching my boobs. Everyone is looking at me, I thought. Everyone is looking at me and they know I'm not wearing a bra. Of course, nobody noticed or cared whether I was wearing one. Yet, I continued to walk with my arms folded against my chest. Lockdown may have long lifted, but my lockdown habits 
which began with foregoing smart clothes, then tights, and eventually, inevitably, underwired bras persist. Back in spring 2020, with nowhere to go, I welcomed it. I can't think of a single bra-wearing person who isn't familiar with the stab of an underwire gone rogue, having slipped the confines of its fabric, or that urgent exhale that comes from unhooking a bra at the end of the day. Pre-pandemic, on rare evenings when I would forget to remove my bra, I'd be reminded of its presence via a throbbing ache on my ribs, my body's Morse code alert that the bra had overstayed its welcome. But in the past few years, the closest I got to an actual bra was a sports one. Is it any wonder that sales of them have risen so steeply that they've been added to ONS's measure of inflation? We may have returned to work, but the idea of returning to our underwires feels like a step too far. For proof, if proof were needed, halfway through the pandemic, in October 2020, lingerie retailer Bravissimo reported a 30% drop in revenue. Data from global market research group MPD also confirmed that sales in women's apparel in general were down in 2020, from April through to June, with bra sales alone seeing a 16% decrease. Fashion doesn't exist in a bubble. It looks at how people are living, what they're consuming, says Loretta Roberts, co-founder of fashion news site TheIndustry.Fashion. People's lifestyles change, and fashion has to respond to that. Of course, bras remain sacred to some women. Take Annette Weimark, 58, who works in film. She tells me she has never gone braless. I'm not someone who could ever wear a top without one. I would feel too exposed. But there are other women like me. Ashley Cunningham, 26, an art department assistant, size 32C, stopped wearing a bra over lockdown simply because she could. I didn't feel the need to be what society considers as presentable. Like mine, Ashley's shifting habits have bedded in. Once everyone started going back to work again, I didn't want to wear a bra. So I wore little crop tops instead of a full underwire. I just find it more comfortable. Some companies on the high street, such as M&S and Cos, have responded by introducing bras that are neither traditional or sporty, just comfy. They tend to sit alongside pyjamas and loungewear and come in unusual fabrics, such as cashmere mix. They're also sturdy enough to be worn alone, should you feel able. Other companies remove traditional bras altogether. Underwear brand Parade, for example, doesn't feature a single underwired bra. The firm's founder, Camille Telez, started the company in response to shifting perceptions. We know there are people who are still wearing underwire because they feel it has more support or provides structure to a particular outfit, or because they feel they're best wearing one, she tells me. So it's less about the death of the underwire and more about offering an alternative. Now, at 38, I found my happy medium in bralettes. Bras in spirit, just without the wires and the padding. I had always seen them as a young girl's garment, made of flimsy fabric and lacking any supporting structure. Times have changed though, and I was pleasantly surprised to see thicker fabrics and adequate structuring. The ones I ordered online come in small, medium or large, no cup sizes, distancing them even further from proper underwear. 
what arrived was black velour, lace trim, plunging v-neck, a thick strap around the back and spaghetti straps on the shoulders, with more support than I expected. My daughter walked in when I was trying it on. As a teenager, she interpreted it as outerwear and told me a member of the band, Blackpink, has the same top. I replied that this was my underwear. Oh, she said. Well, it's pretty and makes a nice top. Before I launched into a speech about appropriate clothing, I remembered that underwear as outerwear is not an unfamiliar concept to me, that when I was her age in the 1990s, a black bra beneath a white school shirt, sans vest, was quite the craze. In primary school, age nine, I remember the moment girls in my class got their first training bra. I was so envious. The idea that they got to wear a proto bra to train their bodies for the real thing felt deeply solemn. And who can forget their first real bra, however embarrassing the experience. A couple years later, my mum measured me by sight, 30B, and left a dark red bra with a thin lace trim on my bed. Swapping the bobbling cotton of my crop top, which went over my head like a vest, for the silky fabric and hook and eye fastening of my first bra, felt like a crossing, a threshold into womanhood. With it on, I stood a little straighter, finally experiencing what it was like to fit in. That was until P class later that week, when I undid my shirt and was met with stares, all the other girls whispering and pointing in their brilliant white bras. I've rarely taken off my bra in the 25 years since. As a teenager, I even remember sleeping in mine for fear of saggy tits, like Amy in Little Women, sleeping with a peg on her nose to coax it into a more attractive shape. Then I got pregnant, age 24, and as my body stretched and swelled, the idea of not wearing a bra was unthinkable. Once the baby was born and I was breastfeeding, I leaned towards unwired maternity bras so as not to damage my milk ducts. I was grateful for nursing bras and their much needed support. Click clasps, an attempt, albeit futile, to prevent a wet patch spreading across every top I wore, but I hated their sexless efficiency. When the time came to swap feeding bras for regular ones, I couldn't wait to feel more myself again. But post-nursing deflation was not something I was taught about in antenatal class. The fat stores in your breast are depleted, the health visitor told me. They may or may not return to pre-pregnancy shape and size. Try buying a smaller size. Just as my body stretched, sagged, shrunk, so too did my bras. I now suspect this planted a seed. For Teles, it's about choice. I know some people who never wear a bra, and I know others who wear one to sleep. It all comes down to how comfortable you are and how good you feel, and it may be a different garment every day. During the pandemic, we saw a swing towards the mass casualization of apparel based on comfort and value. That's not going to change but it will adapt as the world opens up again. Working from home, as I do most days, I still dress in a uniform of sports bra and leggings, and I would sooner throw on a fitted hoodie and a nice pair of trainers for the school run than change back into an underwire. Recently, though, 
I wore a fitted dress with a high neck to a book launch. I knew I'd be in a room almost entirely filled with people I didn't know, and I wanted to feel confident, or at least comfortable. On that occasion, only an underwired bra would do. And as the weather changes, and our shoulders and collarbones emerge from hibernation, I know, deep down, that the thick straps of sports bras simply won't cut it with a strappy dress or vest top. But until then, I'll enjoy my freedom. That was Ouch! Is It All Over for the Underwired Bra? by Yasmina Floyer, read by Kike Brima. Finally, summer is here, we think, which means warmer temperatures, more socialising and often restless nights. The longer daylight hours can make it challenging to get sleep. There are many fads promising you an end to broken nights. But is the solution really a phone app? Writer Amina Sana shares expert tips for better sleep in the warmer months. Read by Walid Akhtar. The spring and summer months can make sleep feel impossible, with everything from sweltering temperatures and noisy late-night barbecues to rowdy birdsong and early sunrises to contend with. Numerous studies have shown that our sleep changes for the worse when spring arrives. Being stressed about it won't help, though. Of course, it is understandable to be concerned about the climate crisis that will see our temperatures reach extremes and make sleeping even harder. But on a sleepless night itself, try to relax. It's totally normal to have the odd bad night, says Dr Ali Hare, sleep consultant at the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. Except that if there is a major heatwave, you might have a couple of nights that are not quite so good, rather than getting really anxious about it and then trying to sleep. As soon as you try to sleep, you won't sleep. If the sleeplessness has gone on for more than a couple of weeks, it is important that people see their GP, she adds. Here, experts give their advice on how to sleep better in the summer months. Consider your circadian rhythm. We all like those long evenings, but exposing yourself to light late on can shift your circadian rhythm back, causing something called a delayed sleep phase and make you want to go to sleep later than you otherwise would, says Guy Leschzener, professor of neurology and sleep medicine at Guy's Hospital in London and author of The Nocturnal Brain. Obviously, many people have got a normal life and they don't want to sit behind closed curtains. One way to balance it out is to get bright light exposure in the morning, as soon as possible after waking, which should, later in the day, make you feel sleepier earlier. Don't forget, bright light from screens all year round also has a negative effect on our sleep-wake rhythm. The right light. Blackout blinds or curtains can be helpful if your bedroom gets a lot of light in the early hours of the morning. An eye mask can also help, if it doesn't make you feel too hot and sweaty. Your room, says Hare, doesn't have to be completely pitch black. People can get a bit obsessed about blocking out every chink of light. It's just about dimming the lights at sleep onset to let your melatonin levels rise, the hormone associated with sleep, and then reducing significant light intrusion in the morning. You are more likely to wake up if there's a lot of light intrusion. Reduce your room temperature. For most of us, says Leschzener, the best ambient temperature in the bedroom is 16 to 18 Celsius, 61 to 64.5 Fahrenheit. In a heat wave, he recommends draping a damp cloth over a fan, 
because essentially the evaporation of water from the dampened cloth will cool the air that the fan is blowing over you. Have a tepid shower or bath. We know that our core body temperature and sleep initiation are closely linked, says Lesh Zener. In preparation for sleep, our core body temperature tends to drop. Before we wake up, it rises. So there are probably some important regulatory mechanisms that link our core body temperature and sleep. A warm or just lukewarm bath or shower about an hour before bed causes dilation of the blood vessels in your skin so that when you get out of the bath, you can lose heat more effectively. Others advise not to have a cold shower before bed, however tempting when the weather is hot, because it may actually increase your body temperature. There is some scientific rationale, because a cold shower will cause your blood vessels to constrict and therefore make you less able to drop your core body temperature. So theoretically, yes, says Leschsenner, but he adds, he isn't aware of any good evidence. Keep a cool head. The brain doesn't like getting too hot, says Jim Horn, emeritus professor of psychophysiology at Loughborough University and author of Sleeplessness. It's one reason your cheeks go red, particularly when you're tired, he says, as your body is dumping heat. You could open a window, but that risks letting noise and light in if a breeze disturbs the curtains. Horn recommends a fan, which comes with the bonus of white noise, something that many people find comforting. A fan nearby with a gentle breeze over your head is, I think, the best method. It doesn't matter if your body gets too hot in your sleep, as long as your brain keeps cool. Cooling tricks Leschzener has heard them all. People try putting a pillow in the fridge or even the freezer before they go to bed, wearing clothes that wick sweat away from your skin, because that increases the surface area from which your sweat can evaporate and things like natural materials for bedsheets. It's all anecdotal, he says, but anything you can do to try to cool yourself a little is something that is probably going to facilitate better quality sleep. Stick to a routine. In summer, our schedules can change, from gardening into dusk, eating late or staying out with friends, and a light evening lulls us into the idea that it's still daytime, meaning we get to bed later and later. A regular bedtime and getting up time is of all the things I recommend for good stable sleep, probably the most important, says Hare. Our habits also change. We may drink more alcohol, for instance. Alcohol helps you fall asleep because it's a sedative, but it disrupts your REM sleep, says Hare. You're more likely to wake up in the early hours and struggle to get back to sleep. We may be more likely to eat later too, but Hare says we should try to avoid eating a heavy meal in the two hours before bedtime because your body can't sleep and digest at the same time. Often, you'll get problems with reflux, indigestion and bloating, and that can disturb your sleep. A light salad is fine, a barbecued feast is not ideal, and stay off the iced coffee in the afternoon. There's a major genetic variability in how quickly we process caffeine, but for most people, it takes a long time. So the general rule I give is to avoid caffeine after lunchtime, says Hare. Avoid a siesta. A snooze in the shade is a pleasure, but Hare says she doesn't recommend a nap, likening it to snacking between meals. You'll tend to struggle to get to sleep, wake up a bit earlier or won't be able to maintain sleep because you've just reduced your appetite for it, she says. The exception, she says, is if you've had a very restricted sleep, 
particularly if you've got to drive somewhere or do something that involves important concentration, then having a nap is important because it does improve your alertness and your ability to focus. But generally speaking, I don't recommend naps as a routine practice. There's evidence that they actually disturb your sleep rather than improve it. Sleep alone, perhaps. You may find you sleep better without your partner tossing and turning with their own sleep struggles or radiating heat. It's a tricky one, says Hare, pointing out that sleeping with a partner is, for many people, an important part of their relationship. It's often the thing that the people she sees in her clinic want to get back to. If you're finding that sharing the bed makes you both too hot, then yes. But I don't generally like advising separate sleeping, she says. It can be hard to get back to co-sleeping if you get into the pattern of separately sleeping. Don't exercise too late. During the summer, you may try to fit your run in during the evening when the temperature has cooled a little, but this could make it harder to sleep. Vigorous exercise will raise the body temperature and the excitement and motivation of trying to smash your personal bests won't help. Save it for the morning. In the evening, Horn recommends a relaxing walk in not too bright light. Though he also adds that, like most of this advice, this is for those vulnerable to fragmented sleep. If you're a good sleeper, do whatever you like. That was Less Booze, More Salads, Maybury Separate Regimes, How to Sleep Better in the Spring and Summer by Amina Sana, read by Walid Akhtar. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Kike Bremer and Walid Akhtar and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Jarja Mohammed. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Isabel Rugel. The executive producer is Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.